Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and this week we are talking with Mary Wilson of the Supremes. Formed in 1959 as the Primettes, they started out as the companion group to the Primes, who later became the Temptations. But the Supremes broke out to become one of Motown Records' most consistent hit-making acts, scoring more Billboard number 1 hits than any other vocal group in history. They also left an indelible mark on fashion. We sat down with Mary, who was a consistent part of the Supremes from its founding until the group's dissolution in 1977. She's also a prolific author. Her latest book, Supreme Glamour, highlights the group's origin story, as well as those iconic costumes. When you think of the Supremes, you think of the songs, but man, those outfits they wore on the Ed Sullivan show and, you know... Soul Train, amazing. And that is where Jim started our conversation, asking Mary about how their Detroit upbringing impacted their burgeoning fashion sense from a very young age. A lot of people are not aware because they they had this idea about black people not being, you know, fashion-type people. But w- we were in Detroit, Michigan, honey, people dressed up. I mean, the <laughs> black folks were dressed, all right? And uh, it was so great because, yes, in church is where you really saw, because we didn't have a, a lot of clubs and things like that, but uh, you really saw how women would come there with their huge hats on, you know, and beautiful high heel shoes and their dresses. So Florence Dine and I and Betty— our, our first, uh, uh, fourth member, all kind of grew up in that environment of, of our parents, our aunts, and uh, uh, not uncles, but our aunts, you know, and our mm. moms, and all the females were always really dressed well. Plus, they admire some of the, the, the black singers and performers who were very big in our black community, maybe not uh, around the world so much. Uh, the Lena Horns, you know, uh, Dorothy Dandridge, and uh, we had so many beautiful black females. So we had our eye on those type of, of women because our parents did. Our, you know, our moms, they just love and idolize these women. So we grew up with that. Stormy weather Since my man and I ain't together Well, Mary, you would also mention that uh, you and Diana Ross, your childhood friend, mm-hmm. would uh, would make a lot of the outfits mm-hmm. early on, right? I mean, how did that start? Was that because your moms taught you how to do that, or how did you learn that skill? 
Well, it, it, we didn't have all the targets and all the stores, you know, that they have now out there <laughs> where you can go and buy, you know, things. Uh, no, we really had to. Our parent, my mom was a domestic worker back in the day, and uh, she would bring home sometimes some of the ha- leftovers or handovers from the family that she worked at, the white family she worked in. So, yeah, we learned how to sew. Uh, my mom had a little sewing machine, and, and Diane took sewing in her. She went to a more college prepar- preparatory. School, and she really had a, a better idea of sewing than I did. I just learned how to sew, but uh, Diane really learned well. And we would sit there and make some of our short little dresses. We did very early on. I think we really only made one or two, actually. One of the things that jumped out about uh, the book Supreme uh, Glamour, that uh, your third book. Mary, is that uh, you, you, you talked about the idea that you always wanted to be on that stage, that that was the thing that really drew you to it. It wasn't so much about any one particular aspect of it. It was more just being in front of an audience, right? I mean, why? where did that come from? Okay, so I, I let me explain that to you, because early on, it wasn't that I wanted to be a performer, because, you know, we're talking about 19 in the 50s. So black people really were not uh, trying to become stars and things like that back in those days. You know, people were struggling just to be human beings and accepted as a, you know, a, a bona fide uh, American citizen. I would wake up singing, and like Sammy Davis used to say, he said he would open up the refrigerator and start, you know, singing. I was that kind of person. I thought everybody in the world woke up singing. <laughs> because I'm this very kind of happy, happy person. And uh, uh, it wasn't until I really, rock and roll became very popular back in in the early, early uh, 50s, and I started listening to the music. And then in in school, elementary school, we had a contest one year, and I had just seen Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers, Mm. and they were singing, Why do birds sing so gay? And anyway, that one, and I'm not a juvenile delinquent, so I I went on the (laughs) show, and I just started pantomime to their records, and the crowd was saying, Go, Mary, go, Mary, and I was like, Whoa, this feels really good. Now, I'm only 11 or 12 years old, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and uh, on the same show was Florence Ballard. It would, I didn't really know Flo at the time. She just lived in the same project uh, complex as we. And she was singing uh, Ave Maria. <laughs> okay, now we're 11 years old children, you know, young people. And I just admired her voice. I was like, my God, she had such a beautiful voice. And we just started talking. And that's how we actually got together with uh, in this little group because her sister was dating one of the primes and uh, they asked uh, Florence if she could wanted to sing in this group and she said yeah my new friend Mary and then that's how we met Diane and you know we kind of started that way but I even then I didn't want to become a singer it wasn't until we put the group together we started just doing little things around the city just having fun and we were just having fun then we we were on shows with other stars who were recording and we got the idea, well, wow, maybe we should think about recording. So this is when the idea of me wanting to be, you know, on stage and really uh, become a singer. And after that, we auditioned at Motown. Mr. Barry Gordy turned us down. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I love that story. So, so, so four yeah. 
uh, self-empowered, self-assured, yes. rather cocky young women. Yeah, well, okay. we were. You know, yes. you thought <laughs> Barry Gordy ought to be listening to you, and yeah. he like sends you guys packing. Says, "Come back when you're done with high school." Mm. Yes, he did. He did, and and we were really not happy about this. Okay, we were still about 15 years old, and uh, and so I remember walking out the door. Florence said, "Hmm, he can't be that great if they don't know how good we are." Yeah, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we really, I mean, you know, because we really actually, when I look back on it now, 50-some years later, you know, I say we really were, and you said the word cocky. I've never used that one. But anyway, I think we really were. And uh, eventually, uh, we, we, we decided to stay there at Motown every day. We'd hang outside the doors, and pretty soon someone came out and said, we need some hand clappers. We said, we'll do it. And that's how we got into the doors of Motown. Yeah. And that's how we got in. And it was really at that point, I, I can finally say that, yeah, I really knew that that's what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. So that's when the bug really got me. So you signed to Motown in 61. Uh, you already had a sense of self, uh, Mary. It sounded like you and the fellow ladies uh, mm-hmm. were were very self-assured in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. But it took a long time by, mm-hmm. by no music hit. biz terms. <laughs> no the no-hit hit Supremes. Supremes became... Uh, I made that up. That was you, right. Yeah. I did. And I tell you why. Because, as as you mentioned, was that Greg who said that? Who yeah. was okay? As you mentioned, uh, we had re- we started recording all these little records, and they were by Smokey Robinson. Hey, and we really sounded we thought really good, and we were great with harmonies. However, we recorded like, I don't know, six, seven songs that still had not become hit records. And at the time, you know, everyone at Motown, it was Mary Wells, uh, uh, they were getting hit records and we were not. So we said, listen, you know, we really need a hit. And I remember I thought that maybe people were laughing behind our backs because, you know, we thought we were so good and we still didn't have a hit record and they, everyone everyone was leaving us behind. So that's when I coined the phrase, no hit Supremes, because I knew they were laughing at us behind mm-hmm. our back and saying, the Supremes think they're so cute, but they don't have a hit record. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, right. so that's when Mr. Barry Gordy finally said, I'm going to put you girls with one of my best writing teams and producing teams, Holland Dozier Holland, who we, most of us know as Brian and Eddie Holland and Lamont Dozier. Now, let me tell you this story. Uh, when we were trying to see what to record, we told Eddie, we said, listen, we got to have a hit record because if we don't, then our parents are going to make us go to college because they <laughs> want us to get an education. <laughs> yeah, all right. <laughs> so we got the hit record. We didn't have to go to college. And mm-hmm. that's when the hits started coming. And it was then in 1963 uh, and 1964, we had our first number one million selling records of five consecutives that were, you know, all together to come, which had not been done by anyone, not the Beatles, not Elvis, not anybody who was recording. So we finally had the last laugh, Mm -hmm. you know, the no hit supreme. (laughs) 
the first big song that Holland Dozier Holland wrote for you, uh, Where Did Our Love Go? You tell an interesting story in the book about how you weren't particularly mm-hmm. fond of that song initially mm-hmm. when, when you got to present it to you, right? I know. Uh, because, I mean, it's a good song, obviously, because it was a million seller, right? And people loved it. Uh, but we would sing standard material, songs like uh, The Four Freshmen, and, 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 you know, we really were great at harmony. And uh, and also then all the artists at Motown were more R&B. Well, it ended up that we weren't as R&B as we wanted to be, so we wanted a record that had that more R&B kind of sound. So like Martha and the Vandellas, you know, Dancing in the mm-hmm. Street or the Barbellettes. More up Mr. Postman. <laughs> yeah. And we were kind of square. So our music was square, we thought. And so this record, Where Did Our Love Go?, for us seemed just too square. We, it wasn't R&B. It wasn't soulful like we wanted it to be. So mm. that's why we didn't like it. And so we begged them. And so Eddie Holland said, Mary, trust me, this song is going to be a hit record. Well, hey, it, he was right. So ever since then, every time I see him, I have to give him a big hug and say, thank you, Eddie. <laughs> yeah, that's, he was right. Well, and there's that long-standing right. uh, fallacy out there that, uh, that the Supremes got Where Did Our Love Go? Mm-hmm. Only after the Marvelettes turned it down. Not true, that, says Mary is, And it's not true. It's not true. And even I believed it for a while because, you know, I didn't know who they had given a song to. But I, I, when I interviewed people for my all of my books, I interviewed Eddie uh, Holland and asked him that question, what, did you really give this song to, where did our love go to, the Marvelettes? And he said, no, Mary, we wrote that song for the Supremes. Yeah. So I got the real story. There you go. Oh, well, we're going to take Mary Wilson word on that. You know, there's a great uh, story you've told. Uh, this notion of as such young women becoming celebrities, it, mm-hmm. it, it's a weird thing. And and at first, the thing that really hit you is that Hudson's, the famous Detroit <laughs> uh, department store, would stay open. Mm-hmm. Just and, and this is a place where Diana Ross had yes. worked. Yes, you know, yes, and now yes. they're like, you know, the run of the department store is turned over to you and Flo and oh, Diana. Yeah, that's true. Well, you know, as I mentioned early on, it was a time when black people weren't that, you know, popular, <laughs> let's say. And uh, we would go to stores, uh, shopping stores, and people would follow you around because you were black and they think maybe you were going to steal something. You know, now that we became famous and uh, uh, whatever, they would leave some of the stores open. You could tell that that America was changing, actually. And I'm going to tell you about equal opportunity. There was a time when the world was fickle and it may have been hard to Oh, the 
was changing and we were changing as black people in terms of uh, the education. See, the education is was so important and our parents would always tell us, make sure you get the education. But I want you to know, I moved to New York back in, I think it was the, the mid-90s, and I went back and I got my associate's degree from NYU in hey. New York City. Well, speaking of school, Mary, it sounded like Motown was in many ways like your your upper level education at the time. You went you went mm-hmm. back to college later, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. as a young woman, mm-hmm. Motown almost like made helped that transition from that young, cocky girl group mm-hmm, to, mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. the women who went and represented the world in these glamorous gowns. Um, how much, you know, I think there's a lot of controversy about that, you know, Mm -hmm. how, Mm -hmm. how controlling Motown was Mm -hmm. over its act with the Mm -hmm. image and the choreography and the stage act. How did you, how did that play out for you? Well, well, can I, can I, can I, and I'm I'm happy you asked that, but can I actually maybe change a word or two in there? Motown wasn't controlling. Mm -hmm. They actually, and if you look at like the Hollywood uh, system, how they, you know, they groomed their talent, Motown was more of that type of thing. Mm-hmm. And that's what we and we wanted that. We wanted that because that's what we had in our homes. Our moms and our dads would teach us those kind of things. So now when we were singing, you know, we go into to Motown Records. They also had the same type of values as we had. Mr. Barry Gordy's mom and father were one of the black in the black community who we would call kind of bougie because they mm-hmm. they had a store, you know. Then and, and so and their their daughters went to uh, uh, model school and you had mentioned um, Maxine Powell who actually owned the modeling school mm-hmm. now she at that point she came to Motown and she started grooming us and there was in a department called artist development also there was Charlie Atkins who was our choreographer and people ask about dancing with the stars and whoa was that hard it's like no we we were doing that back at Motown that's what mm. uh, Charlie Atkins was <laughs> teaching <Yeah>. us <laughs> you know he really was and if you look at any of those old and we were on Ed Sullivan's show 16 times if you look at any of those old clips you'll see we were doing so many type of dances Mm -hmm. we were singing the stances that we started before we were even at Motown so you know those were the kind of things you mentioned I'm glad you said that that Motown was it was like going to college Mm-hmm. And look at all the people, those shoulders we rub shoulders with people, great, talented people. Stevie Wonder, Marvin Gaye, you know, all these great artists, and they were all talented. It was like being at a, a musical Disney Disneyland, you know, <laughs> Motown was. And being rubbing shoulders and learning from these great, gifted people, it was college. It was a musical college.
Mary, the, some of the some of the best photos in Supreme Glamour are mm-hmm. those candid shots mm-hmm. of you and your bandmates, and sometimes mm-hmm. Maxine Powell, the, yes. of the famous uh, uh, grooming school. Um, you know, in Japan, in the UK, in London. To what extent did it, and when did it dawn on the group that we are are not only celebrities now? Hudson stays mm-hmm. open for us, but we are ambassadors. We are ambassadors mm-hmm. of the African American community in the mm-hmm. United States of the civil rights movement to the world. Did, did, mm-hmm. that, did that hit you? Did the importance of that hit you? You know, it's amazing. Everyone asked that question. Of course it did. Uh, and, and I say, of course, like that because, you know, and I hate to keep going back to that racial thing, but because black people were not really considered smart or any of those kind of things. So when we became famous and popular around the world, we knew that we had accomplished something that our parents had prepared us for, what Motown had prepared us for, you know, what we had dreamed about ourselves. As always, we want to hear from you. What's your favorite slice of the Motown sound and why? Leave a message on our hotline with your opinion at 888-859-1800. Coming up, more with Mary Wilson. That's after a break on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, the brewers of Next Coast IPA, 312 Urban Wheat Ale, and Bourbon County Stout. Pairing beer and music since 1988, they believe it's always best to listen critically and enjoy responsibly. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And this week, our guest is the great Mary Wilson of the Supremes. By 1968, the Supremes had racked up 12 number one hit singles. But after years of tension within the group, lead singer Diana Ross, of course, left to embark on a successful solo career. The Supremes, though, continued well into the 70s with a revolving membership with one constant, Mary Wilson. Greg asked Mary about that period in the group's history. Well, I have to uh, give a shout-out to post-Diana Ross Supremes, um, which was, uh, Mary, that was kind of, I think you were the reason that group kept going. Oh, it was, and, trust and me. And <laughs> had an enormous amount of success, perhaps underrated because mm-hmm. the first incarnation of the group was such a huge hit. Mm-hmm. But I love uh, when you got a chance to sing out front, um, oh, Floyd Joy. Uh, that was a Smokey Robinson song, yes, yes.
Tell me about that. I don't know how he gave it to me. I guess it just suited my voice. Because I do have a kind of, uh, my voice is not as versatile as Diane's and a lot of people. I mean, I have a voice that I can sing certain things and sing them well. But if you put me out in some place, I can't. Smokey, you know, produced for Mary Wells. And a lot of her songs for me are songs that I could sing as well. So I think that perhaps when he was writing that song, he probably said, well, oh, here's one. Mary can do this. So I think it was that thing. I was very happy that he gave me that because it was my first real solo, mm-hmm. so, which was really cool. In the group, I should say, yes. Yeah, Thank that's an you. awesome uh, moment. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm and I'm glad that you mentioned the '70s Supremes and uh, versus the, the '60s, because the '60s we made the hits. In the '70s, it was a new group, and we right. had hits yeah. too. Gene Terrell brought a wonderful uh, uh, sort of experience to us for the 70s. But after that, uh, you know, we just didn't get the support from Motown and, and or the other sort of hit records that we needed. I should have quit earlier, but that wouldn't be fair to say about the other singers who came in late because they were wonderful too. Mary, I'm curious about your work uh, that the Supremes recorded with Stevie Wonder back in 1973. Some of that music still remains unreleased. Well, Stevie Wonder, we, you know what? Let me tell you. Stevie did the greatest song recording for us, which was called Bad Weather. I think I'm going to run into Bad Weather. Gene Terrell sang this song because this was after Diane had left the group and uh, Barry had brought Gene Terrell in and that's when I decided to keep the group together because after hearing Gene Terrell, I'm like, yes, she can do it. Mm-hmm. And we never finished that album. We only did the Bad Weather. I think they may be re- going to re- re-release a couple of those songs, but there were only a few. We didn't do a complete album. So those were your how, two how albums. How would history have been different? If, if you did a full album in 73 with Stevie Wonder, how do you think? Well, you know, I think it would have been great because Bad Weather was a fabulous record. But mm-hmm. it, at the time, we weren't really getting a lot of promotion and the group was changing, members were leaving and things like that. So that record didn't get a fair play on the radio. But you know what? It was at the time when I really realized it was time for me to end the group. 
So mm, yeah. just shortly after that, of course, after Jean and Linda left, then we had Sherry Payne, who's Frida Payne's sister. She's an excellent singer. And Suze Green. Now, they were the last Supremes. And that's what I just decided at that point. You know what? I cannot have another, you know, in and out, in and out. you got to know when to quit. Your image, and I think not just the songs, but as you bring up in the book, the the, the look, the image, uh, the choreography, uh, you know, it's it, it's transcended generations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so that you, it's almost like you're a, you know, people could be dressing up as a supreme, and mm-hmm. that would be a great cost. You know, like oh, I know instantly what that is. Mm-hmm. And obviously, mm-hmm. you inspired so much art. Uh, I mean, Dreamgirls. You know, yes. where, where do you stand on that? Mary? Well, you, I, in my shows, I, I I have to say that I'm a little comical about it, and I treat it very lightly when it really is not. But what I say is that I know you guys have seen this this movie and this play. You know about the group well, that's supposedly about the Supremes. Well, I'm here to tell you that it's not true because I did not get paid. But I still think it was a beautiful project. I think it was a beautiful play. I love the play. I've seen it many times. Shirley Ralph and I are great friends. Mm. But still, I can't even write my own movie because people say, oh, we always saw the Supremes movie, Dreamgirls. Mm-hmm. It's not fair. But uh, that's where we are. Uh, the legacy of what those uh, the girls from the projects, as you said, mm-hmm. in Detroit, mm-hmm. did and accomplished. Um, you know, you go back and look at 15-year-old you. What would you have done differently, if anything, uh, over the course of that career? You know, after signing the Motown contract and, you know, those kind of things, when business really began to take over our thing, I can say that I probably should have got a lawyer. I think that's what I would have done differently. But in terms of for us, the three of us, I love Flo, I love Diane, love Betty, and Barbara, who replaced Betty. So it was more the business side of it that uh, you would wish you'd had somebody whispering in your ear back then saying maybe this is something you need to pay more attention to. No, no, I don't want them whispering in my ear. I want a lawyer saying, Mary, this is not right. (laughs) (laughs) A bulldog. A bulldog. Right. (laughs) Before we end, I do want to say, uh, because the book is about the supreme glamour, the gowns we wore on Ed Sullivan's show, Mm -hmm. Shindig, Hullabaloo, all those wonderful shows. Uh, And and so the gowns are very prominent in the book. And my gown exhibit, Supreme Gowns uh, travel, they travel around the world, actually. Mm -hmm. Mary, it's a dumb question, but the extraordinary Mm. uh, photos that take up the center of the book um, of just so many of those extraordinary outfits. Where Mm. do you keep them when they're not touring as part of the exhibit? Like, how many warehouses do you have? (laughs) Look, honey, I need need a a rich husband to to pay for them. (laughs) 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 
You know, well, I have I have storage units. Yes. Yeah. And so I'm sure we, it's got to be I climate controlled, right? Because yeah, otherwise, them. those beads are falling off. The fur is, you know. Yeah, it's, and it's true. But I thank God that they many of them have survived, and they look fabulous. We had photos taken of each of the gowns up close. You can almost touch the beading that was there because our queen mother gowns that we wore for the uh, uh, queen mother and Prince Charles and Princess Margaret and at our command performance in 1968. Those gowns weigh 30 pounds. There are beads, there are sequins, there are pearls. There are all kinds of things on it, but they're very heavy. In the chaos of traveling and touring and wardrobe managers and road managers, yes. there have been gowns that got out of your possession that yes. fans mm-hmm. have gone out, tracked down, purchased. You know, a woman from England yes. buying it in France, somebody else finding it on eBay, and they and they want to bring them back to you. Yes, and, and there's a guy, Daniel, who, who called me one day. He says, Mary, guess what? I think your gowns are up on eBay. I'm like, buy it, buy it, buy it. <laughs> <laughs> And he did, you know, and then then returned it to me. It was so sweet. Uh, But also, uh, one last thing about what's in the book in terms that I'm very proud of is that I was able to speak with a lot of people who actually not just designed the gowns, but people who actually made them, who sewed every single bead on it. A lot of them are have deceased now, but uh, a couple are still alive, and I've spoken with them, and it's just such a pleasure to know these artisans because we're, we're not keeping people who do who used to do all of that wonderful work. I mean, even people who style our hair, you know, the hair pieces, they call them wigs, but I call them hair pieces. They don't do that anymore. So I'm very happy that I was actually able to, uh, you know, really interview a lot of those people who worked on the gowns. Yeah. I want, uh, you know, to know, Mary Wilson, what is one of your favorite uh, Supreme songs. We know about the string of hits that, that numbered more than the Beatles, and maybe it's one of those, but I want to know which song is the one that gets you every time and why. First of all, you're a guy. I'm a girl. Yes. <laughs> I'm actually a mom, and I'm also a grandma mm-hmm. and a great-grandma. You never tell which one is your favorite. <laughs> ah, all, right. all right. All right, let me rephrase. Which is the one that makes you tear up? when you hear it. Many of our songs have lasted, and when I sing them now, uh, because I didn't sing the lead before, so I I wasn't really into the lyric as much, and the one I enjoy singing now so much is Reflections, because Mm. it's so true. I mean, every word is something I could say right now in terms of my own life and my experience. Through the mirror of my mind Through these tears that I'm crying Reflects the hurt I can't control So to answer your question and not to be catty, I'll say reflections. But it's not oh, my that, favorite. That's a beautiful thought. That's a beautiful thought. Yeah. So here you are at this point in life uh, with so many accomplishments and, and the reflections are, mm-hmm. are rich. Yeah. I'm 75, I'm 75 and a half, and I say that because it, that's why it means so much to me, because I, I, I look at how things used to be, and I, and I look at the people I'm losing in my life. We just lost mm-hmm. recently uh, the beautiful Diane Carroll. She and I were very dear friends. Mm-hmm. Nancy Wilson, she and I were very dear friends. Mm-hmm. And the world has lost two beautiful black women who really helped to carve the way we think about music and everything. That is so true. We have been talking to the legendary 
Mary Wilson uh, of <laughs> Motown you. fame, author, author, and uh, and Dancing with the Stars star. She was uh, Rob Sean Spicer, man. He was Rob. <laughs> Mary, I was, I, I'm saying Sean that Mary's that. not. Mary's the nicest person we've ever interviewed. <laughs> Doesn't say anything bad about anybody, but I'm gonna say that. But, such an honor to talk to you, Mary Wilson. Thank you, you guys, so much. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. <laughs> After a break, Jim and I are going to review the latest from Southern Rockers, Drive-By Truckers, and indie artist Torres. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. I am here with Greg Cott, and now we've got new music to review. That is a little bit of Good Scare, the first single from the fourth album by Torres. The album's called Silver Tongue. Uh, Torres, Greg, that is her stage persona in real life. She is Mackenzie Scott. Fascinating young woman, Greg, uh, raised in Macon, Georgia. Began singing in high school musicals and in church. Picked up the guitar as a teenager. Moved to Nashville really young and began recording. The two albums that really put her on her map were the last two, starting with Sprinter in 2015, the last two records produced by Rob Ellis, frequent PJ Harvey collaborator. We were huge fans of Sprinter. She was a guest on episode 501 of Sound Opinions Performed Live, and uh, we interviewed her. Uh, and now comes this new record, which is self-produced. She is now based in Brooklyn, recording on her own, relying on nobody else, she said, uh, eager to get uh, the sound directly from her soul onto these tapes. Let's play a song and we'll come back and give our opinions. This is the tune, Last Forest, Silver Tongue is the album. It's out shortly. Kind. 
that is last for us to track from the new Torres album, Silver Tongue. Jim, as you mentioned, we're big fans of, uh, of her earlier work, although I thought the last album, Three Futures, was a transitional record for her. Mm-hmm. Very focused on those synths and keyboards at the expense of the guitar. I think it missed some of the, the hooks in the songs. With this self-produced album, I think she's really, again, found that amazing voice that you referenced. A great singer. And she lets that voice shine in this record. The way she's integrated the guitars with the synthesizers, those atmospheric beds with those riffs and the finger picking works incredibly well. It's all very minimal, but everything she includes is just perfect. Stripped down and a lot of hooks. Uh, the hook quotient is way up from the previous record in a, in a kind of a sneaky way sometimes. That voice cannot sing a single dishonest note. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I just feel there's, she's very transparent in the way she sings. The vulnerability in her voice is always apparent that she's going to reveal all of herself. Uh, and at the same time, uh, sucking you in with these little hooks. I love the way that little syncopated drum part dials in during uh, Dressing America. It just sort of Sink. picks that song right up. That little riff, is, is that a guitar, is it a synthesizer, is it something in between that sounds like a rusty door hinge on good grief? I can't get it out of my mind, you know, it's just a, it just sort of sticks in your head. Well, a Good Grief, a fascinating song lyrically, too. Mm-hmm. It's about how some women, because this is sort of a concept album, personal, but then broadening out about the highs and lows of romantic relationships. Well, yeah, I mean, it's one thing to be mutually in lust and quite another to be vulnerable. I mean, you can, yeah. you can be, you know, uh, you can have this partnership that lasts a night or two, but what does it take to let that person into your life in a deeper way? And I think that's what this whole album is about. Well, it, you know, I mean, it's it's novelistic uh, detail, Greg, that really uh, carries some of these songs. That single good good scare that we played uh, about an assignation with somebody in the back of a red uh, Chevrolet pickup truck, uh, and, and that person's already, quote, eyeing the exits, you mm-hmm. know. Yeah, right. And yet uh, it, it's fascinating. I think we can all relate to it. Whoever Torres is singing about these songs, uh, dig deep. And it's it's a spectacular record. You make me wanna write a country song. Folks here in New York get a kick out of about knocking you up under Tennessee stars. My children's eyes look at me and they ask me to explain it hurts me that I have to look away the powers that be are in for shame and come up and generation lockdown as their day they'll throw the bums all out drain the swamp for real perp walk them down the capital steps Show them how it feels Tramp the dirt down Jesus You can't pray the rod they'll spare 
That is Thoughts and Prayers from the new Drive-By Truckers record, The Unraveling, the 12th studio album by this veteran band. Uh, The two co-founders, Patterson Hood and Mike Cooley, met in uh, college in Athens, Georgia in the 80s, were in and out of a few bands, got together to form Drive-By Truckers' debut album in 1998, third album, Southern Rock Opera, a double album that not only established their credentials as a pretty good indie rock band from the South, but also incredibly thoughtful songwriters with something to say, in this case, a deep uh, self-interrogation of the duality of that Southern thing, as Patterson likes to say. Uh, And they've been continuing on that thread all along. They've had a number of lineups through the years, uh, including another great guitar player and songwriter, Jason Isbell, who's gone on Mm -hmm. to a a terrific solo career. But Cooley and and Hood uh, remain the primary voices and songwriters in that band on their 12th studio album. Uh, In 2016, a lot of people called American Band their most political album. Uh, Let's just say that the unraveling their new album follows that thread (laughs) along to a great degree. Uh, Here is a song from Grievance Merchants from Drive by truckers on sound opinions. As long as there have been stories, lies, and airways, what makes a man a man's been right up front. Envisions boys are sold of what it could be. Grievance when it ain't like what they thought. When money and respect seem to elude him. Being white alone don't make the lady swoon. There's no shortage when it comes to hearing. Outside forces turning them against him A conspiracy to water down his blood Grievance Merchants from Drive-By Truckers, the new album, the uh, 12th of their career, Mm. The Unraveling. That is a Cooley song, Greg. You know, the tune that keeps sticking in my head is an earworm. Holy cow, thoughts Mm. and prayers. No, that's just, wow, taking that phrase we hear after these tragedies Mm. of school shootings and mass shootings and turning it into uh, an insidious hook. Every time I say, I've heard what the drive-by truckers can do. Yeah. (laughs) I was saying that when you were such a super fan of Southern rock opera. I'm like, okay, these guys are setting out to write a song as good as Powderfinger by Mm -hmm. Neil Young. And now they've written like a dozen of them uh, throughout these 12 albums. But this album, I think, is, uh, is another masterpiece. It is surveying what they are calling the wreckage of America in the wake of the current political climate and this deep division between red and blue Mm -hmm. and north and south and urban and rural, uh, all of these divisions. They're looking for commonalities. A song like Heroin, again, about uh, missing my friends who died using heroin. A song about babies in cages. That is the title. Look, there is no hiding where they stand politically, but I think it's they're looking at the victims of the current Mm -hmm. moment of hatreds, and there is nothing but empathy 
from Southern Rock Opera and even before, this has been a band that doesn't see red and blue and conservative and leftist. They they see people Mm -hmm. and people that are hurting, and that makes them angry. And they rail against it here with incredible songwriting and power. There's a lot of specificity in those lyrics, you know, thoughts and prayers, you know, gun violence, obviously babies in cages, self-explanatory. don't need to explain what that song is about uh, beyond the title. You know that this is addressing the immigration crisis. You know, that small town collapse in 21st century USA. But I also love the songs that are more uh, describing the emotional toll that the last few years especially have taken on this country. Rosemary yeah. with a Bible and a gun, Armageddon's back in town, slow ride arguments. songs are talking about like what does it feel like to be a fugitive in your own country yeah. like you feel like a fugitive in your town in your country you feel like you're running from something all the time your family the law yourself in some cases mm-hmm. you know and it that's a terrible place to be as a human being and again that sense of empathy which i think jim defines their career as great songwriters they went from good to great when they started writing about these people who they've known all their lives living yeah. in the South. Well, and it has to be said, this is the longest between Drive-By Trucker records ever. American Bands 2016, they were on our show, 2017, mm-hmm. 595 uh, was the episode. And and they didn't know, Patterson Hood said, if they'd be able to write again. They, mm-hmm. they Both he and Cooley had writer's block. And then they got stuck on tour outside a small town uh, with nothing to do in a motel. And mm-hmm. it was looking around and seeing as they sing in 21st century USA, look at the Mexican restaurant down here mm-hmm. and, and the closed up storefronts. The parking lot beyond Oasis Town Down the street from the Mexican Restaurant beyond the Auto Zone And the place is hawking payday loans There's a Kmart and a KFC A fitness center and an Applebee's Wells Fargo and a Taco John's Good time bar to get your bad swerve on. They are really reporting from the streets of America. In a town that's named for razor blades, all American but Chinese made. Folks working hard for shrinking pay. 21st century USA. So, two exciting records to kick off 2020, Greg. What do we have on the show next week? Well, more exciting stuff, Jim. We've got the Oscars coming up, and we're going to share our favorite acting performances by musicians in film. Tell me something, boy. Aren't you tired trying to fill that void? You can download Sound Opinions wherever you get your podcasts. The show is produced by Brendan Banaszak, Alex Claiborne, Iona Contreras, and Andrew Gill. I'm falling. Baby, we we'll laugh and sing. we we'll make love. Let the telephone ring. Come on in, you got James Taylor on the stereo.
and sound opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages. Hi, my name is Rick. I'm calling from Pinehurst, North Carolina, originally from Boston, Massachusetts. I just finished listening to your Pet Sounds show on public radio. I'm 70 years old, and when Pet Sounds came out, I listened to it, and it was like nothing I had ever heard before, and I fell in love with it immediately. Now here it is uh, 50 years later and I listen to that record and I get the same feelings I had when I was 16 years old. It still brings tears to my eyes. It's the greatest record I have ever heard. I love the Beatles, but I love the Beach Boys more. I love Brian Wilson more. His music is transcendental. It changed my life, and it continues to change my life. Thanks for a great show. Bye. Yeah, you know, I'd really like to thank you for the Pet Sounds tribute. And as someone who was 16 years old when that song came out, God Only Knows, and as somebody who is now celebrating their 40th year of practicing Buddhism, I never realized that essentially that song is, is a Buddhist theorem, an essence. Well, thank you for that enlightening moment. Bye-bye. If you should ever leave me, the life would still go on, believe me. Hi, my name's Andrea Eberman from Seattle, Washington, and um, Pet Sounds, it reminds me of my dad. He was the first to surf in um, the north of England, in the UK, and when I was a little girl, he used to play that record all the time, and I remember sort of, God only knows, literally crying when I was about five and crawling under the coffee table because I was so emotional. Anyway, still love it. Thanks so much for a great program. If you should ever leave me, the life would still go on, believe me. The world could show nothing to me, so what good would Hey guys, I hope it's not too late to add a track from the uh, weed episode. Um, the Loonies, I got five on
one of the great uh, lead-oriented hip-hop songs from the mid-90s. So, uh, gotta have that one on the list. Thanks. Bye. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.